Well, this morning, um, in the book of Acts, chapter 13, if you would turn there with me, how many of you have ever seen a movie, maybe like a, a movie like Outbreak, or, uh, you know, there's some virus that is going around, and uh, what happens is someone has the virus, they're on an airplane, and uh, they land in London, and then all of a sudden you see like this dot show up on a map and then lines come out of that dot and then it goes from London and then it flies and you follow it, it goes all the way to uh, Los Angeles. Boom, and then from Los Angeles it spreads and then it goes to other places as well. And that graphic that is represented by the picture here is really a, a representation of the gospel. Jesus said that we're to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where it began. Uh, To Judea, which is uh, that area around Jerusalem. To Samaria, which is north of that. And then to the uttermost parts of the world, which includes whatever city, whatever neighborhood, whatever town that you live in. Because in reality, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a missionary. We are all called to be on mission because Jesus was the initial missionary. He came to our world. He left his home to come and reach out to us. And he calls us to do the same. And sometimes we almost get the wrong mindset that there are missionaries, those people that are sent to other countries, and then there's us. And what are we? We're just Christians. As though we're just Christians that aren't also on mission. And God also wants us to be a part of that mission. And I want to share with you that apart from being on mission for Christ, the Christian life, um, you know what? It it becomes self-serving. In many ways, it could become just a bless me time. Like I want to be blessed and I can leave a worship service, uh, a worship gathering saying, what did I get out of it? Instead of, Lord, how did you equip me to be a blessing to others? And so this morning in Acts chapter 13, we want to review... Last week, we looked at how uh, the church was gathered at Antioch, and Antioch was an amazing, amazing church. North of Jerusalem, as you see it on the map, it was an international church. Again, that witness of the gospel means that of every tribe and tongue and nation, that means that there's no difference in nationality or, or color or gender. You know, God loves everyone. The gospel is for everyone. He wants every person to be saved. And then as we are saved and as we follow Christ together and we walk together, that becomes a witness to the world around us. It shows that, that the love that we have in Christ and the unity that we have in Christ is greater than our differences, now, last night we had our, our uh, Thriving Marriage Seminar Part 1. It, it was funny, you know, just talking about it because we, we left it with some homework. This week, we're supposed to take one small portion of our lives that we're to try to implement and apply God's Word in what we learn to try to solve this area of our lives, this conflict, biblically. And it's funny because they said, oh, uh, you know, Bob said, why don't you pick one thing? And Deanna and I looked at each other and we started laughing. And we were were just laughing and he was wondering why we were laughing. Because the area that we chose in our lives was chaos. So we want to try to solve chaos this week. You know, like we want to go from chaotic to to non-chaotic. And and we're laughing. He's like, you might want to start, you know, a little bit smaller, you know, some bite-sized chunks. So so what we're, we're picking this week is something smaller. But in that marriage, you have two sinners. You have two human beings with different minds and different uh, DNA and different biological and different experience and all of these different things. And yet God calls us to live in unity. 
And that's a blessing because that's what the gospel shows, that in Christ we could become unified. So in Antioch, this international church, uh, some of the people in Antioch were from North Africa, some were from um, Israel, some were Jewish, some were not. And then as they ministered to the Lord, you remember this from last week, they, they first ministered to the Lord. Then the Holy Spirit said, now set apart to me, Barnabas and Saul, okay, for the work of the ministry to which I've called them. And let me say this, to be set apart to God means that we have to be set apart from other things. Okay, let me repeat that. To be set apart to God means that we have to be set apart from other things. Now, I want to make sure that we understand this because there's a lot of misunderstanding amongst Christians sometimes when when we understand what it means to be in the world but not of the world. Some people believe that what it means to be not of the world is you find a piece of property that's big enough where you don't have any neighbors. And you build gigantic fences around it and then you dig a well so you have your own water source. And you store up food supplies and you buy guns so that no one can infect you from the world. And I'm just setting myself apart from the world so that I could worship Jesus. And that's not what he's talking about. That's not what the Holy Spirit set them apart for. It it means that in the midst of our culture that we live in, that we affect culture and we are a part of culture, but the parts of culture that contradict God and his values, those are the parts that we reject. The parts that aren't against God, we can receive those and be free to receive those things. And then there are parts of culture that need to be redeemed because it started out as something, like think about art. If you look back at art, so much of the great works of art were, were believers that followed Christ that drew, they drew, I don't even know, drew a painting, made a painted a painting, there. We, they painted paintings to depict God's glory. They composed music. To, to explain in like Handel's Messiah, trying to depict God's beauty and his glory. And art has become something else where it's only personal expression for many people. And in many times that art is actually anti-God. I don't know if you remember at one point in time in the United States, there was a, an artist that was funded by our own public funding of art that was a, a crucifix in a jar of urine. And that became a work of art that our government, the, the guy received a grant from the government for this art. Now, art is neutral. Art could either be glory, glorifying to God or it could be um, against God. Those are parts of culture that need to be redeemed. And so don't think of it like, oh, those art people, you know, or those movie people or those uh, graphic artist people or those singers or those actors or those people. That's bad. No, it's neutral. What do you do with that? And can I redeem that? Can I, can I reflect the gospel in what it is that God has called me to do? So as they ministered to the Lord and they were set apart to him, they were set apart from the world and then they were sent. The Holy Spirit sent them. And remember, in the sending, um, it says that they laid hands on them and then they sent them. And it also says the Holy Spirit sent them. Uh, We talked about it at our elders meeting earlier this week where uh, really there are some that uh, when it comes to the Bible, and we looked at this passage, some sent and some just went. 
The difference is that when someone is sent, it means that the Holy Spirit is speaking to them and the Holy Spirit is speaking to the body of Christ. And in agreement together, they are being sent out as a, a missionary work. You know, I, I think of the Petricks and the Browers and I, I think of Theo. I, I think of people that we know from the body that have been sent out. The Holy Spirit spoke to them and also to the body of Christ. But whenever God sends us, it's important to realize that there is spiritual opposition. Do you remember that as soon as uh, Barnabas and Saul, they, they go into um, this area it says in verse 6 of chapter 13, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now, I want to tell you that that sounds really funny to me in English. I'm thinking, first of all, you started off with the wrong name, Bar-Jesus. You know, we have to bar him from this place, but literally bar means son of Jesus. Jesus was a common name. And yet, not Jesus the Christ, not Jesus the Messiah. He was just the son of this person named Jesus. But he was a false prophet. He was a, a sorcerer. Now, something of interesting note. When, I'm going to go back here. When Paul and Barnabas were sent out, notice they left Antioch and they, they sailed, as you see in that southern direction, southwest, towards Cyprus. Now, Barnabas was from Cyprus. So Barnabas and Saul, where are they sent first? They're sent home. Saul of Tarsus, he, he ministered in, in Tarsus, but you know people rejected him, and so eventually he had to be like rescued away from there. And now they're sent right here to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas is from. He probably had relatives from there. He probably knew people. He probably had childhood friends from there. And let me say that if you've been a, a follower of Christ, maybe you're a new convert, the first people to go to is your own people. Go to your friends and your family. Go to people who know you. And then maybe the Lord will call you to stay there. Maybe he'll move you on. Maybe they'll reject you. Jesus wasn't received by his own for a, a period of time. And so the first thing they do is they go to Cyprus. But I want you to see that as they go there, there is opposition. And no child of God says, let us arise and build without the enemy saying, let me arise and oppose. Now, I want you to think about this in your life. When God has done a work in your life and you just feel like, hey, I need to minister to these people or I really need to work on my relationship with my own family. Or maybe it's, um, I, I wanna reach out to the people that I, I grew up with. Have you noticed that at times there's opposition? Have you noticed at times it gets more difficult when you're doing the thing that God has called you to do? And all of a sudden in, in this opposition, remember that Paul, it says in verse nine, called Saul at the time, um, when Elymas the sorcerer, also Bar-Jesus, it was his other name, he was seeking to turn people away from the faith, specifically uh, the proconsul here, it says in verse 9, Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, again, remember this, this is an apostle here, all full of love, he said to Simon Bar-Jesus, he, he said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? 
And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And the proconsul believed. And when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they went to Perga, to Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So we know that in this opposition, there was a departed disciple, uh, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. At this point in time, he takes off. And maybe someone has kind of deserted you, someone that you served in ministry with, or, or maybe someone that you partnered with, and that person deserted you. Don't give up on them. Now, there was a point in time when Paul and Barnabas, they, you're, we're going to get to it. They actually part ways because Barnabas says, no, let's take him with us again. Let's see if we could restore him. And Paul's like, I don't want him with us. The contention became so great, they parted ways. At the end of Paul's life, when Paul is in a, a dungeon and he's waiting to be executed, he writes this letter to Timothy and he says, bring Mark. Bring Mark. And I I love that because a reconciliation happened and Mark is restored to ministry and Mark also wrote the gospel of Mark that we have in the Bible. So you get here to verse 14. And this is a history of his story. It, It says that when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia a different Antioch from the church they were sent uh, from. So again, cities have have, uh, same names in different parts of the world. Um, I I was blessed to find this out later that my dad was born in the Philippines. And uh, when we moved over here and I became the pastor here at Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz that my dad said, oh, did you know I was born in Santa Cruz? And I said, no, I had no idea. He was born in the Philippines in a small little barangay, a little village called Santa Cruz. So different Santa Cruz, but this is a different Antioch. So um, they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and they sat down. And after reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Now imagine giving this open invitation to Paul. You think Paul's gonna take him up on this? Like, hey, if you have any exhortation from God, uh, do you wanna come and speak? And let me tell you that when it comes to serving the Lord, look for the open doors that are going to be open in front of you. Because sometimes in our density, we don't see the open door. I remember one time I was at Blockbuster Video and uh, I was in a hurry because, you know, it was getting late. And you know, those, those nights when you want to start watching the movie, it's getting late. So I'm in line, I'm, I'm getting a movie and uh, Life Magazine is in the rack. So this dates it to a while back when Life was still in publication and Blockbuster videos existed. And uh, these guys that were behind us, they were talking about it. And they saw this caption on Life Magazine. And one of the guys asked the other guy, and, and, and I don't know if he was joking or what. He just said, what is the meaning of life anyway? Now, in my density, I'm like, I got to get home and watch this movie. And I leave and I start driving away. And I'll tell you, man. The Holy Spirit just comes upon me, and I just feel like an idiot, and I just felt so bad, and I was like, I, opportunity, there's the open door, and sometimes the open door comes, like, hey, do you have anything of exhortation? Do you want to share anything with us? No. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't have anything to, sh- I don't have anything about the meaning of life that I could share with you guys. Um, Paul walked through those open doors. And so sometimes it might not seem like an open door. We don't know it. It disguises itself. 
And someone might just say something like this. You know what? I'm just really bummed out lately. Open door. Someone might just struggle in relationships and say, you know what? Relationships are just hard. Open door. You could talk about the relationship that helps every other relationship. I mean, there's open doors all around us. And so many times we're just so focused on getting the job done or what it is that we want to do that we miss it. So Paul being there and these people are together, he stood up in verse 16. And here's the history. Motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God. So the men of Israel, those were the Jews. And the men who fear God were Gentiles who were part of the worship service. Maybe they weren't even converted yet. Maybe they didn't become proselytes to Judaism, but they were those who feared God. So he said, listen, and maybe some of you are here today. You're not yet a follower of Christ, but you do believe in God. And that's why you're here. You're just listening. And those were the types of people that were gathered in the synagogue. And Paul said in verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And by the way, as it says, he put up with their ways. Uh, in my personal devotions right now, I'm in the book of Numbers. And I just read the passage yesterday about the children of Israel walking through the desert and they started complaining. And God heard their complaints and he says, Moses, I'm going to torch them. (laughs) I can't stand it. They just keep complaining. I think he's also checking Moses' heart and Moses begins to plead to the Lord. God, please don't, you know, don't, don't destroy them. And see, I, I, as I'm reading that, I'm like, how many times do I complain? You know, how many times out of my mouth, there are just complaints instead of God, thank you for your blessings. God, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for um, all of your provision instead of complaining about what's difficult. So it says that he put up with them. He put up with their ways in the wilderness. In verse 19, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, those that were evil and came up against God's people, it says he distributed their land to them by allotment. So when we consider the history of Israel, they were taken out of Egypt. Um, Does anyone know how far, how many days of a journey it was going to be from Egypt into the promised land? It's less than two weeks of walking. Okay, they could have gotten there in less than 14 days walking. It took them 40 years to get there. And maybe you've heard this before that, that, uh, you know, it's 13 days to get, uh, you know, the Israelites out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites and Egypt being a type of the world. And I think sometimes we, instead of taking shortcuts, we take long cuts and we take the long way around and we make things harder on ourselves by just not submitting to God and asking him for wisdom and direction. And man, we're lost. I hate being lost. I hate driving by the same thing. I just drove by that, you know, and I'm lost. I'm like, where am I? And I I see the same landmark. I'm like, oh, I get so frustrated with that. And then GPS says, you know, there's no service. And then you're, you're lost. And see with the Lord, I think that there are so many times that God wants us to go in a certain direction, but instead of waiting upon him, instead of praying, instead of seeking him, instead of obeying the last thing that he told us to do, we say, well, I'm just gonna do it my way. I'm just going to go this way. 
and we find ourselves wandering and literally sometimes wasting decades of our lives stuck. There are times we could be stuck for decades of our lives because we're not following the Lord. So after they came out of Egypt, in verse 20, it says, after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So in the book of Judges on Wednesday nights, we were going through Life Church uh, last year, and we took all of that time, and it's summarized right here. But let me say this, the book of Judges was about cycles. The cycles that we go through as Christians. What is the cycle? Affliction, trial, pain, perplexity, difficulty, then we pray, God, please help me. Get me out of this mess. Please give, rescue me. God ministers to us. He helps us, saves us. We relax, we sin, and we start the cycle all over again. That's a brutal roller coaster if you've ever been on that roller coaster. If you're on it right now, there's a way off, right? There's a, there's a way to bypass some of those things by just abiding in, in Christ. After the judges, we get to the period of the kings. It says in verse uh, 21, afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. I, I, I love how, God at times in his word will call David a man after his own heart. And I'm actually blessed by the fact that we know that David was a fallen man. I mean, what is David known for? If you associate David to two people, who are they? Bathsheba and Goliath. David's great victory and David's great defeat. And David was a fallen man. There was one point in time when he numbered the armies of Israel. He's looking at their military strength because maybe pride is lifted up. Maybe he's trusting in that might. And it says that Satan prompted him to do that. So we know that David wasn't perfect. We know that David blew it. But I'll tell you, David never left God. He got back up. And I want to encourage you, if you've fallen, if you've messed up, be like David and get back up. Let that be a part of your testimony that it's not about you being perfect. It's about God's grace. And that's the gospel. The gospel is this. We're sinners. We mess up. We're imperfect people that serve a perfect God who loves us and is gracious and has sent his son for us. And I'll tell you that testimony, it encourages so many people in the body of Christ. See, sometimes the testimonies that we love are the testimonies of conversion when someone is first regenerated, born again, and they start following Christ. But I'll tell you, some of my favorite testimonies that encourage me is someone that has been a Christian for years and was walking with the Lord and hit a rough patch and maybe went through a time of rebellion, but came back to the Lord and was restored and they, they were still submitted to God and God still used them. That's the testimony of David. It says in verse 23, from this man's seed, according to the promise God raised up for Israel, a savior, Jesus. Now we get to Jesus. And after John had first preached before his coming, um, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course. So we go from out of Egypt to the judges, to the kings, to David. And now John the baptizer, John the Baptist. It says in verse 24, John had first preached, that was the beginning of his ministry. 
in verse 25, and as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Now, the rabbis um, had servants, people that assisted them. They helped them in the work of the ministry. And they actually got together and they decided as a council, what would be things that if we ask these assistants to do, that would be too low even for them. Like we shouldn't ask them to do that. That's, that's too low. Because the rabbis could say something like, could you prepare, uh, you know, can you prepare the implements for the ministry today? Uh, can you clean up in the, the synagogue? Can you uh, do these different things? But they agreed that loosing your sandal strap was too low. To, for a rabbi to say, uh, come here, assistant. Um, can you untie my shoe and take my shoe off? You know, can you undo my sandal strap? That was too low. So they decided, okay, we'll decide. Let's not ask them to do that. John the Baptist, when he came, he said, I'm not even worthy to do that for Jesus. And I really love that about John because Jesus said of those born of women, there's none greater, none greater than John the Baptist. Jesus had a very high view of John. And yet John had a very low view of self compared to Christ. So after John the baptizer, and it says uh, men and brethren in verse 26, and sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. So notice to the Jews first, to those that are sons of Abraham and those who fear God. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, listen to this, there was, they could find no cause of putting Jesus to death. They asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Verse 29, and when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Both in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Galatians, it explains, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. And I don't know if you've ever heard the Bible summarized in this way, but it's a a tale of two trees. You have the tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree in which free will is exercised. You could either eat of this fruit or not eat of it. And God tells Adam and Eve of any other fruit, of any other tree, go ahead, except for this one, don't eat of it. And when they ate of it, death entered, sin entered this world. But we know that when Jesus came and he hung on the tree, it was that tree. Because he took our curse upon himself, we can be free because of what Jesus has done. So here in Acts, we see a reference to that uh, book of Deuteronomy and Paul later on in Galatians, which, by the way, Galatians is written right around this time as Paul is on his first missionary journey. It's his first letter, um, first epistle that was written. Notice that it says this um, in verse, uh, let's see, in verse 30. So after they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. Um. We sing a a Christmas carol about tidings of comfort and joy. 
And where does that come from? It comes from the glad tidings. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And let me tell you that in a week of incredibly bad news on the news, we have the good news. I mean, it, it's really, to me, kind of silly. Sometimes they, they front load the news with all of the bad stuff, and then they want to make you feel good about a puppy, you know, that was saved or a, a kitty that was in a tree. And like, that's the good news? That, that's what you have for us? After all of that, you have a, a kitty that was saved from a tree to give me some kind of hope for this world. And what we have is we have the glad tidings. We have the gospel that was promised, which was made to the fathers. Let's not keep quiet about the good news because our world needs the good news. Our world needs to hear that there's a God that really does exist, that really does love them and really does care about them. And then it says in verse 33, God has fulfilled this for uh, us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus as it is written in the second Psalm. Now, before I quote this Psalm, I'm gonna tell you that Peter also explained this in his first sermon. Peter and Paul, you know, they had some disagreements at times, but let me tell you what they agree upon, which every Christian must agree upon. It's the resurrection. When it comes to the gospel, I have friends, uh, other pastors here in Santa Cruz County. We, we get together for these gatherings, these prayer gatherings, and I love it because it is I'll tell you, if there were a sitcom called The Pastors, it would be the funniest show that is on television. Because you have, you know, you have guys in collars, and then you have guys that are tatted up, and you guys have guys with like, you know, uh, hipster clothes, and and then you have uh, people that believe in the rapture and don't believe in the rapture, and you have those that believe that there's signs and wonders that are done today, and those that believe that those things ceased, and you have Calvinists and Arminius and everyone in between. But let me tell you what we agree upon: that this is God's word; it's infallible. We agree upon that Jesus is God's son and Jesus is God and Jesus is Lord. He died for our sins and that salvation is by grace through faith and that Jesus rose again and he has filled us with the Holy Spirit to continue his mission. That's what we agree upon. It's awesome. And when we agree upon that, we realize we are on mission together. That the church, large C, capital C, is much bigger than our church And we could partner together in the gospel and have differences of opinion in what scripture says on minor issues. But let me tell you that when Peter and and Paul, when they agree, it's on the essentials right here and, and much more than that as well. But it says here in Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, David was the human author of this, but the Holy Spirit was the one inspiring David. And let me tell you what Peter and Paul agree upon. They agree upon the fact that David was not writing this about himself, but he was writing this as a prophecy about the Messiah, the Christ. He was writing this about Jesus who would come later. Because notice it says in verse 34 that he raised him from the dead and no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, David saw corruption. He was buried and his body, it, it suffered corruption. There was no preservative that could preserve his body. As much as people say, hey, cryonics and, and uh, you know, I could freeze dry myself, your body will go through corruption. But Jesus, because he had no sin, did not go through this corruption process. And they realized that this is a prophecy looking forward to Jesus. 
And now I want to close with two verses and a couple of pictures here. It says in verse 36, For David, after he had served his own generation, by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. I want to end this morning's message, and we'll finish Acts 13 next week, um, by considering this. David served his own generation. And I want you to consider this morning what it means to serve your own generation. Tom Brokaw wrote a book about my mother and father's generation. And if any of you have read the book and you know what it's called, it's called what? The Greatest Generation. For those of you in that generation, you're like, yeah, the greatest generation. Incredible generation. Um, The things that that generation had gone through. The things that that generation had experienced. uh, The way that that generation... They, they just understood hard work. They understood the value of family. They understood ethics. They, and they didn't get it all right, as no generation gets everything right. But there was a lot of great things about that generation. But when I go all the way back to David, it says that David served his own generation. This morning, how do you serve your own generation? I have a picture there of uh, my parents Uh, That was the last picture that I took with my dad before he went ahead of me earlier this year to be with the Lord. Um, I'll tell you that there's times, like right now, I'm doing okay. There's times when I'm not doing okay. It catches you off guard. Sometimes in, you could be just doing every regular day things and then you could hear a song, you could see a, a picture, there's something that hits you and I'll just start weeping. And I'll just say, Dad, I miss you and I'll just think about those things. And this morning, I I think it's important that when I look at his generation and what they did, it's also important for every generation to minister to every other generation. So I'm going to share with you from my experience where I am right now of what it means for me to minister to my generation. And my generation, it means that I respect those that are older than me and have more experience and have been through a little bit more of life than I've been through. That's why I love to ask questions to people that are older than me. I, I want to find out what was it like, you know, when you had kids and you felt like, am I going to make it through this season of my life? What was it like when financially you were just struggling and you were just going through a hard time? How did you make it through? In your marriage, how did you get through those, those difficulties that every married couple goes through? I talk to older pastors and I ask them questions like, hey, when you were a pastor at this point in time, at this stage in your church, or if you transitioned and you took over the, the pastorate of a church that had already been in existence, what was that like? What did that process look like? What did it look like to leave a church and, and to prepare someone else to come alongside to hand the baton over to that person? Because in every generation, I want to learn from the generation that has gone before me but I also want to minister to that generation. It's not just, the stream doesn't only go one direction from older to younger. I want to share with you, it also should go from younger to older. And so when we talk about, you know, the second half servants, the second half saints that are part of this ministry, I want to encourage you to come out on Thursday for that lunch if you want to be a part of serving that generation. I'll tell you one of the greatest ways to serve that generation is to listen. 
There's a wealth, a wealth of experience and a wealth of faith and a wealth of testimony that we glean from. So I don't want that just to be for those that are on that second half. I want some first half servants to come and say, hey, how do we prepare for the second half? How do we glean from you? And, and vice versa. There's an excitement that happens. And so part of serving, David serving his generation is he understood those that went before him, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, and, and even, even Saul and even Samuel and all of these people that came before him. But, but David served his own generation. Now, I, I think about this morning. I received a phone call from my mom every Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, 52 weeks out of the year, I receive a call, not just through the week, but on Sunday morning. And usually it goes to voicemail because I'm out and about, or it could be during church, and she will leave a message explaining how she is praying for you and for me this morning. She's praying that you would be able to receive and grow and that the the gospel would go forth from this place. And she's praying for me to have wisdom and to be able to share. And you know what my mom is doing? She is ministering in her own generation to me and to you and to all of us. See, at every generation, we minister one to another. And don't ever think that at whatever age you are, that you're too young or that you're too old. Because I'll tell you what, at every age and in every generation, there's ministry that goes both ways. Now, I also have a ministry to those of you that are right where I am. Uh, It's in the raising of kids phase of life. We're not empty nesters right now. You know, we have uh, one that we're launching out. You know, Rebecca is being launched to the Philippines. And and, uh, we have four more that are in that, that quiver still. And, and we're in this together. And if you have kids, you're right in that place or you're at that age. So we minister together. Hey, uh, Paul had Barnabas, but he also had a Timothy, right? And I, I think of Paul and Barnabas, and, and then he also had a Timothy. And Timothy had a, a Paul. He had someone else to go to. And we should all have people that we are pouring into. If you don't, don't wait for someone to come to you and say this. Hey, can I disciple you? It's not going to happen, all right? If you've been waiting, you need to go to that person and say, hey, and you don't even have to use the word disciple. Hey, can, can we go out to lunch and can we just talk? Can we just hang out? I just want to pick your brain about some things. I just want to get to know you more. I just want to uh, just, I see something in you and, and, well, you don't even have to say that. Just go out and just ask questions. And let me tell you this. If you are also waiting for someone to come and say, hey, will you disciple me? That's not going to happen either, okay? So it goes both ways, not just, or, or can I disciple you? So it goes, it goes in both directions. You need to look for those people that you could pour into. Now, I'm going to end with um, this picture before we conclude with the last couple of points. Uh, we were able to get to Monterey Bay Aquarium, and um, this is, uh, my daughter Rebecca came up with this pun, the Valencia clam. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever been to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, but everyone takes pictures at this clam. And so we got them all in. And these are my pearls. Okay, that was my pun. Uh, (laughs) But when I think about serving this generation, you know, I look at my daughter, Rebecca, who's graduated from college, you know, in young adulthood. Um, Statistically, when you look at demographics, the least likely person to be at church on a Sunday morning in America is 20-something-year-old men. 
So if you're a 20-something-year-old man, thank you. You are here and you are a testimony to God's faithfulness. You're being bold in your generation. I mean, Rebecca could tell you that, you know, just uh, with her friends, they're like, hey, where's all these Christian guys? You know, what happened to them? You're like, where are they? Where are they? Sorry, Becca. <laughs> She's going to kill me. I'm sorry. But, but it's true. And, and you know what? It, it, it's true. And in our generation, it is so important to follow after God hard. And, and let me tell you about this generation. They have giftedness that is unbelievable. They have a, an opportunity. You know how we, we get caught up in our, our ways that are set? If you are older, you get super frustrated when you buy a computer and there's no instructions. You know, you buy a smartphone, and you're like, what do I do with it? Where's the book? You know, where's the manual? And they know that, that there's no manual because things change so rapidly. It's going to be updated next week. So you better learn it as quickly as you can because it's going to be obsolete pretty soon. And they're just pliable. They're just flexible like that. And we can learn from that generation a lot of different things. Being flexible in ministry. Being flexible to reach our culture. Not being so set in our ways that we're not willing to expand. And yet, there's a lot of things that that generation can learn from a generation that has gone before. And if we ever, at whatever generation, in our arrogance, think our generation's the greatest, we can't learn from any generation, we're stuck. We're stuck and we're short-sighted because we need to be able to learn from every generation. I go to my son, Matt, who is in high school. And that high school generation, praying for a youth group, so blessed that, that Josh and Erica moved here. Keep them in prayer. Praise God, they found a place at Mount Hermon so they're gonna be able to move in uh, for at least a year um, praise God for it. If you, if you have a chance, walk through the, the glass doors, go outside of our building, go all the way until you hit trees. And when you get there, you're going to see a fire pit that's out there. You're going to see benches that are all around it that were filled with about 50 kids this last Wednesday night, as we had a couple of other churches gathered together for a worship service. Praise God that this generation, we care about this generation and we need them. It's not like we, we just want this generation. We, we need their help. And we need them to run some technology things and lead some worship and, and greet and usher and teach the kids and clean and do all of those other things as well and to be missionaries in their high school campuses. So we need to equip them. We need to love them. Let me tell you that when I look at uh, my son, Josiah, I, I love it because earlier this week, he had a dream, kind of a nightmare uh, yesterday, Saturday. He woke up and his dream was this. He was so like frustrated and he was bummed because he woke up and he missed his ride to church because he comes early on Sunday mornings to cut bagels and to go to the store and to put cream cheese and to help Sue and Ryan and these other people. And he was so bummed and then he was so excited that he realized it was Saturday. Hey, it's Saturday. It's not Sunday. <laughs> but you know what? He has a heart to serve. So in his generation, I, I, I used to junior high... I see some junior hires. Hey, junior hires. I love you guys. Because let me tell you that for a long time in my life, junior high was the, the black hole in my ministry. I have administered to little kids. I administered to high schoolers. But don't give me junior high. They have too much energy. And I get too tired. And now I just love junior high. I'm coaching. I'm helping to coach my son's football team with a bunch of junior hires. And I, I love it. I love being around these guys. And that generation has something to offer. And let me share with you when it comes to Ellie and Abby, who are, um, you know, our little girls that are still in elementary school. For those of you that work in children's ministry, thank you. Um, I realized something on our schedule, just looking at it recently, that, that Carl has been back there just about 
every Sunday for the last few years. And I said, Carl, I talked to him this week. I said, that ends now. Okay, you are going to be able to be out and in service and with adults. And, and uh, I know it's scary being with the adults, but you're going to have to be with the adults. And we want, and the reason is because we want you as well to partner with us so that if you have kids and you want to be a part of helping out, we want to equip you and we need you. We need people to equip our kids. You know why? Because we're building for growth. And I'm building for growth as though I'm saying like, um, you know, it's like a, a business model. We're building for growth by faith because I believe that's what God wants to do. We're going into Vine Hill School and we're starting Kids Club and we're getting on campus. You have kids at Vine Hill, pray for that campus. We are praying that God blesses that. And for some people, it's just childcare, but there's gonna be some people that come to know Christ and families that come to know Christ. If you wanna be a part of that, let us know. We would love to have you be a part of that. Every generation, and let me tell you as parents, don't ever undermine or devalue your ministry to your own children. Because I believe with all of my heart that my five kids are gonna have a much greater impact on this world than Deanna and I have. We're, we're preparing them, we're launching them, we wanna love them, we wanna equip them, and, and by God's grace, that they would have a great impact on this world. So we serve this generation by first of all, as we begin, ministering to the Lord. Secondly, by knowing the word and living the word. By the way, If you notice Paul's sermon, and we'll finish it next week, it sounds a lot like another guy's sermon that went through the Old Testament and showed God's history throughout all of Israel. There's a guy named Stephen. And Saul of Tarsus, who's Paul the Apostle, was there consenting to the stoning to death of Stephen. And he heard Stephen's sermon, and he heard Stephen's testimony. And you will find throughout the book of Acts, whenever Paul gives a sermon, guess what? It sounds just like Stephen. Sounds just like him. He was ministered to by someone that knew the word and Stephen was a table waiter. Don't think, well, I'm not a pastor. I don't need to know the word. No, you do need to know the word. If you wanna have an impact on our culture and our generation, you need to know the word. So know the word and live it just in your everyday life. And then don't be a slave to, this gener- to the generation that you're in. Don't think, well, I have to, I'm stuck here in this generation. No, you could learn new things and you could learn things from people that have gone before you. And things, like I said, uh, that are part of culture that are not biblical and are anti-Christ, reject those things. But serve the generation, don't be a slave to it. Minister to those who have gone before, to those we travel with, and minister to those who will come after us. And let me close with this. Be whole, wholehearted for God in this generation. Be wholehearted for God in this generation. I believe that if we seek the Lord and we say, God, light my heart on fire for you, that when we assimilate the head knowledge of what we're learning here on Sundays and we supplement it throughout the week with daily meals of reading God's word and applying them to our lives, there's going to be um, a mystical spiritual thing that happens. The practical and the spiritual will begin to blend so that you won't think that spiritual things are what you do here on Sunday and practical things are what you do during the week, but the spiritual things and practical things are gonna blend so that you will become that person that in all you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all for the glory of God. 
So when you're at school, when you're at work, when you're with your friends, when you're with your neighbors, when you're having fun, you're doing it to the glory of God. And my heart and prayer for us as a body is that as the Lord begins to do that work in us, that we get prepared in the now for the later. I'll tell you what, if you talk to any good farmer, they till the ground, they plant the seeds, and they get ready because they are expecting. They're expecting a harvest. They don't do it not expecting a harvest. No farmer farms and says, I'm just doing it to do it. You know, maybe we'll get a, you know, they do it because they expect a harvest. May we have the faith to expect that. Because if we follow the Lord and we're obedient, we can't fail. We really, we really can't. You can fall, you can get back up. But I'll tell you what, if we're just obeying God, whatever he does, and that's success, then we can't fail. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for your word. And God, we pray that you would help us to serve this generation at whatever age we are at. That, Lord, there would be an intergenerational ministry. Lord, not only within the body, but Father, I just, I think of all of the people that we pass by. Lord, this morning, um, walking through my neighborhood, I saw houses and I heard conversations that were happening, people that were up and they were talking. And Lord, I was just thinking that these people need to be worshiping you. These people need to be gathered together where they could be edified. And if they don't know you, that they need to come to know you. So Lord, wherever we are at, we pray that you would help us to serve our generation well. We know that after David served his generation, that he fell asleep, he, he went to be with you. So God, we we know that there is a time for sleep, a time for rest spiritually, and there's a time for work and a time for planting and a time for harvest. So Lord, we are in that season when Jesus, you told us to pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. You told your disciples to lift up their eyes for the harvest is already white. It's, It's ready. So God, I just think of these people as we travel to the beach and maybe hit some of the Santa Cruz traffic instead of just thinking about the traffic. I pray that you would lift up our eyes to see the harvest is ripe. There are many here in this county, which is named Holy Cross, that don't know what the Holy Cross is and what you accomplished on it. So God, would you just use us? Would you fill us with your spirit? And Lord, as we worship you, help us this morning to minister to you. And as we minister to you, that your Holy Spirit would whisper and we would hear and say, Lord, here am I, send me. We thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.